This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. The boss said to me, oh, he asked for the room to be cleared. And he said to me, look, your cover's been blown and uh, our information is you'll be dead by the morning. We need to get you out of here tonight. I have everything arranged. That's how it happened. And that's why I was taken out of Derry and ended up in Mrs Thatcher's office, (laughs) having been brought over on her plane. (laughs) From Foreign Policy, welcome back to I Spy. On each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. For decades, the Irish Republican Army in Northern Ireland fought for independence from Great Britain. During a period known as the Troubles, starting in the 1960s, the group carried out scores of bombing and shooting attacks. In response, British intelligence agencies thoroughly penetrated the IRA and its political wing, Sinn Féin, with agents. One of those agents was Willie Carlin, a soldier in the British Army, originally from Derry in Northern Ireland. He was recruited by the British intelligence agency MI5 in 1974 and spent 11 years undercover. Carlin grew particularly close to one key IRA man, Martin McGuinness, who would go on to become a political leader in Northern Ireland. Here's Carlin's story. I was in the army for nine years. Over the years, I was made up, promoted to Lance Corporal, Corporal, then Acting Sergeant. I was stationed in uh, Bovington Camp in Dorset with my wife and my little girl called Sharon. And one morning, I was making her bottle and went upstairs and suddenly heard my wife screaming. And I went up and anyway, the upshot of it was Sharon was stone cold in the cot. The doctor came brought her downstairs, tried to resuscitate her, but she knew she was dead. So shortly after that, my wife, she wanted to go home back to the north of Ireland, to Derry, which was understandable because, you know, any Irish girl would want to go home to her mommy, you know. So I decided that I would write to my sister and ask her, look, would it be okay? Would it be safe enough? Etc. Because... The last soldier that went to Derry was shot, dead, a young guy called Ranger Best. And it's not a very safe place. It's not like Belfast, because everybody knows everybody in Derry. My sister, like a lot of young Derry girls, were involved in the Troubles. But a lot of these young girls, what they do is, they hang around with an IRA volunteer. And if he went on a job, he would usually take a girl with him he either pushed a pram or had a long maxi dress on. And when he fired the shot or the shots, the, the revolver or the rifle would go in the pram. He would go one way and the young mum with the baby would go the other way. So my sister was at times the gun carrier. And she rolled back and told me that it would be fine. So I got a call one day from a captain and I went out and met him. I was very apprehensive, but I I turned up anyway in a place called Bear Regis. Funnily enough, 
right outside Lawrence of Arabia's cottage, which was very profound. And a man introduced himself to me and he knew I was going back to the north of Ireland, to Derry. And he told me that he worked for an organisation that wasn't military and that I shouldn't call him sir. And led on to him saying that Derry was a hard place to have infiltrated and that they had some people on the periphery of things, but they were looking for someone to go back to Derry and just get involved in the community, not to join any terrorist organisation. Don't get involved in the Irish Republican Army, just get involved in community work and get noticed. And uh, we'll see where we get to. And he warned me that that is dangerous work. But he said at the same time, your sister's word to you is manna from heaven for us. For your sister to say you'd be safe enough, that's good authority. I was intrigued and my wife was delighted. I mean, she thought that, you know, we were going home because I wanted to go home. I didn't really want to go to Derry. I mean, they told me at the time someone would always be watching me, which turned out not to be true. <laughs> but uh, the thought of something different, something exciting, and the fact that, you know, we would be home amongst friends. So people have often said to me, why the hell did you do it? And that's the only reason, you know. And that's how it all started. When I went to Derry at first, it was very strange because I went to see my handler just outside Derry. The odd person would come from London, they would fly in and, and hire a car in Belfast and come down to Derry. And I would see them in a you know a picnic area or a picnic spot or port rush. And we would sit and have a coffee and a chat. And for a long time, after two or three of them, I began to think to myself, I don't really understand all this. I mean, I'm not telling them anything. I don't know anything. They don't seem to ask me anything. You know, just how's it going? And I remember once the third person that I met when I said at Bainty a Tenants Association meeting in the area I lived in, and I was elected on to the committee and I was nominated to be the secretary. Now, it was no big deal. It was just about housing and repairs and and, and different things and writing letters to the local newspaper about the residents' complaints. And they were very excited that I had managed to get this, which was, I thought, Jesus, is that all this is all about? But this is how it kind of worked out. Um, when the tenants' associations would hold a public meeting, obviously all the residents would come. And within those residents, there were men and women who were Republicans, as opposed to just nationalists. And uh, they then used to come to me and say, well, hey, listen, my mother got this letter from the housing executive. Can you go down and see about that? So I was now a guy that they came to, albeit in my own little area. And of course, that got me in the Tenants Association. They said to me, look, would you join Sinn Féin? So I did. And again, MI5 were absolutely delighted. The more I got involved with Sinn Féin, people in my area, IRA volunteers, used to come and tell me things because as far as they were concerned, I was sound. 
you can trust Willie. You know, if you say to Willie, he'll, he'll get it sorted for you. You know, we had volunteers in the waterside who weren't happy about certain things. And I was asked to bring it up at a Sinn Féin meeting. So I'm now associating with IRA volunteers all through Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin was the political wing and the IRA was the military wing. But um, the higher up you go in Sinn Féin, you're mostly IRA after that. Martin McGuinness was the Chief of Staff of the IRA in Derry at the time. And I became very confident around Martin. He grew up in the bogside in Derry. He went for a job in a company in Foyle Street and they rejected him because he was a Catholic and never gave him a job. Eventually got a job as a butcher and he drove a van around Derry delivering meat for Doherty's butchers. He's seen some terrible things, he said. Um, that's what spurred him on to join the IRA. He ended up being, if you like, the most sought-after person in Derry to speak to. And he often said to me, I have no idea, Willie, how that happened. And then he began to realise that, you know, there was people getting killed around him. And like he said to me, you know, I had to kind of try and organise it a wee bit better than it was organised. And that's how they organised sales. Sales uh, became the thing, you know. And he was the person behind that. A lot of the stuff he told me, like when I travelled with Martin and we were talking about things, or about policy, or about Sinn Féin, or for example why the IRA never put a bomb in Scotland, and the reasons for it, and his reasons for it. That was like gold dust, I didn't know that. And again, MI5 were absolutely delighted. A lot of this information just went to Northern Ireland office. Very, very few of it ever went across to London. And very, very, very few of it ever ended up on the Prime Minister's desk, either through a secretary or otherwise. But my information became wanted, sought after. Anything at all, anything. Because I spent a lot of time with Martin and Mitchell. A lot of people talk about Jerry Adams. I only seen him three times in my life. And that was at funerals. <laughs> so... Martin came over to see me one day and we were going to a funeral. It was an IRA volunteer who'd been shot during a skirmish with the British Army. So they got him away over the border into Donegal to Letterkenny Hospital. I mean, the IRA said at the time that they had engaged the British Army foot patrol, had shot one soldier and their men went back to base safely. Obviously not true, because he died over the border. It wasn't, he was never named. You know, when when you have to go and tell some poor woman that her son's been shot dead, and she collapses into your arms, you feel terrible. And then you have the funeral, and it's the bile rises in your stomach, and you think, Jesus, you know, I, 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 I should be on the IRA. But then you have to focus and say, now, wait a minute. You're doing a job here. You don't know a lot about what you're doing, but your instructions are do not join the IRA. And you're now involved in Sinn Féin, which is where they wanted you to go in the first place. In fact, 
you're actually shaping some of the policies. You're actually speaking at the Ardèche in Dublin, the annual conference. That's exactly where we want you. So I had to focus on that a lot. But, I mean, there were times it was so... I was so angry. I got a phone call one night round about midnight from Mitchell McLaughlin and Martin. Was I busy? I said, no, but I'm about to go to bed. He says, listen, can you come over to the house? Mitchell lived in Cable Street in the box out. I says, I sure am due to meet you in the morning. He says, no, can you come over now? I says, Jesus, Mitchell, it's a half twelve. He says, no, it's important. So uh, I thought, oh, Jesus. If you're going to go, this is the way you're going to go. I says, okay. And he says, listen, don't bring your car because your car is well known by the RUC and I don't want to park outside my house. That was number two clue. So here I am. I mean, it's about two mile as the crow flies from where I lived to Mitchell's house. So I'm walking down Fountain Hill over Craig Avon Bridge, which is go over the foil, and up through Abercorn Road. And the closer I'm getting, I can hear my heart going. And you know, I don't know if anybody knows, sometimes you can feel your heart beating in your ear. And I kept thinking, you know, you're, you're going to die here. This is you. Go back home again. Go back home and phone somebody. Because you know, Martin McGuinness is over here waiting on you. It's quarter to one in the morning. And don't bring your car, you know. So I remember I got as far as the Bogside Inn, which is about 200 yards from Mitchell's house. And I lit a cigarette and stepped and round behind the Bogside Inn. Uh, and I could feel I needed to go to the toilet. So I went to the toilet. I came back round, finished my cigarette. And so I walked about, 20 yards turned round and came back again behind the box I done. I couldn't hardly breathe. I thought, you're, you're going to die here. Yeah, I knew I was going to die. No doubt about it. You could have tortured me and I, I would have told you, I know I'm going to die. So I took a deep breath, walked up towards Cable Street and there were two people standing by the mural on the wall, the big mural in the gable wall two young guys standing there smoking and I thought Jesus this is it so I crossed over and says how's it going he says how you doing I went over and I knocked on Mitchell's door took a deep breath uh, Martin said come on in uh, there was a guy sitting on the sofa Martin said to him look that's alright Paul I'll get back to you on that he obviously I don't know he was either there to see what I looked like I don't know but as the minutes went on, it turned out that Mitchell wasn't going to be available for the meeting the next morning. He was going to Belfast. And uh, that was the reason he wanted to get this leaflet and these documents to me. He just wanted to touch base with me because he was going with Mitchell as well. And that was it. I didn't die, but I'll tell you, on the way back, I thought the two guys are now gone from the gable wall. They're going to get you on the way back. 
They could have told me that tomorrow. They didn't need to bring me all the way over here to give me two A4 leaflets. That's nonsense. No, this is, you're going to die. So, all the way back. Till I got home and fell into bed. Uh, then I knew I wasn't going to die. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. We return to Willie Carlin, MI5's man in Northern Ireland. You realize very quickly that, you know, you could get killed doing this, so don't be stupid. Don't be cavalier. If you think that's something you can't do, don't do it. If there's a meeting next Thursday at 2 o'clock and you've got to be somewhere else at 2 o'clock, then don't go to the meeting. My handler can wait. Whereas in the early days, I would have made sure I went to the meeting. Listen, nobody came to me and said, look, here's a box of tools. These are the things you need to do and these are the things you... No, 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 not. Nobody gave me a phone and said, this is bugged. And no, you know, I remember once saying to uh, one of my MI5 people, you see this car? I said, not possible for you guys to put a radio on here or something like that. I see it on the TV where it's, you know, when the radio is on, it's actually recording. I said, look, you know, well, you're traveling around with Martin McGuinness. There are times you pull into a VCP, a vehicle checkpoint, and they take the car apart, which they did do quite often. And if they find out that's a recording device, you'll be dead. Because <laughs> Martin will be told, oh, you were being taped. So, you know, you couldn't do any of that. But my own protection, if I was asked to go somewhere I hadn't been before to meet people or meet somebody, I would always agree a time and then I would get there about an hour early. And park up maybe a quarter of a mile away and then just walk to where I'm supposed to go to don't enter the building just go along, stand, have a seat sit and have a coffee, watch the door have a cigarette things like driving round around about three times see if anybody's following you looking in shop windows when you're actually looking across the street in the sunlight different things like that just to be safe, you know Somewhere along the line in MI5 it became clear there's only one way to bring this thing to an end and that's by reaching an agreement. You know, the dogs in the street knew. (laughs) You know, the civil servants knew. The men in grey suits knew. Now, how do we start? How do we, I mean, the troubles are getting worse. And there were people who sat with this Rubik cube who could see the only way to solve this is by agreement. We're not going to beat them, they're not going to beat us. So how can we do it? So they were always looking for ways of opening a door that that's currently locked. And one of the ways they worked out was if Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness were political representatives the body politic would have to speak to them. You know, we could have a situation where MPs could invite them to London as politicians and they wouldn't be castigated for doing so. They're duty-bound 
to see these political representatives like Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness. Now, everybody knew they were IRA, but that's not the point. <laughs> as far as the civil service was concerned, you know, a bit like, yes, Minister, yes, Minister, I hear what you're saying about the guns, but he does wear a different hat when he comes in this room. So, I mean, at the end of the day, if you have Jerry Adams and Danny Morrison and Martin McGuinness and, you know, Martin Ferris and people like that in a room in London and you ask them over coffee something and you get an answer, it's gold dust. That the British government wouldn't talk to terrorists. We don't speak to terrorists. We don't deal with terrorists. We don't negotiate with terrorists. So one of my tasks was to get them elected. The people I was dealing with in 82 were a mixture of military and MI5. And on one occasion they said to me, look, if you can, right, get yourself into position for being in charge of voting or something, anything to do with voting, and see if you can get to a point where you can personate or have a team of people to steal votes or personate votes uh, so that you can get Martin McGuinness elected. And they said to me, it's vital that you get him elected, or it's vital that he gets elected, because we're civilians and we're not politicians. And in Downing Street and in Westminster, Martin McGuinness is a devil incarnate. No one is going to deal with him. However, if we get him elected, then he's a right to be seen. So I got him elected to the Northern Ireland Assembly. We stole votes, we personated votes, we manufactured votes, and we got him elected. Now that meant that Martin would now still Martin would now receive correspondence from Stormont as an assembly member. And I remember having to read it all, because Martin didn't want to know about it. <laughs> didn't care um, it also meant that Martin could go to meetings as an elected representative you know stealing votes and personating and getting them elected put them on that road all the way to Stormont I mean I have a poster at home folded up somewhere in a suitcase where there's a photograph of Martin on it it's in green white and gold and the right and Martin's on the left hand side and the writing says we will never achieve United Ireland through the halls of Stormont. That's exactly where he ended up. So, I mean, Martin used to say to me, see what you got me into. <laughs> well, one day I got a phone call from my handlers that they wanted to see me. I said, I'll see you tomorrow. They said, no, now. Took me straight into Everton Barracks. The boss said to me, look, your cover's been blown and our information is you'll be dead by the morning. We need to get you out of here tonight. I have everything arranged. You can tell your wife. If your wife doesn't want to come with you, then that's not our problem. Although you could tell her that, you know, she'll suffer the consequences of your betrayal. So see if you can get her to come with you. So off I went back home, told my wife, she sat for a minute and I said, look, can we sort this out? Look, let's, can we just wake the wains up now? Just take a suitcase with their clothes and the basics, not forever. Just, can we just get away 
for the weekend and sure if this all blows over we can come home again nobody will know they'll think we went to the only golf for the weekend so that's how I got her out of the house and into the car she always believed that I was doing something on politics something to do with politics the next thing I knew were up in Hollywood barracks just outside Belfast and we stayed there for two or three nights and then I got word that we were leaving and it was a Thursday and got on this jet. Couldn't believe it. This wee plane. <laughs> I think it was about 20 seats on it, no more. A white kind of velvet. As it turned out, that was Mrs. Thatcher's jet. We didn't know that. Douglas Hurd had been using it. He was Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. He had flown over on it. And uh, he was to fly back that night. And somebody from the Cabinet Office phoned him up to tell him that the jet had been secured by Mrs. Thatcher herself. So me and the family were flown out of Belfast on Mrs. Thatcher's jet. My wife was in tears. My daughter was only five years of age, six. She thought it was exciting. My son, Michael, he was uh, nine or ten. And he went to the toilet and came back and says, you want to see the toilet? <laughs> you just get up and it flushes itself and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> we landed at RAF North Holt and then these cars turned up. And one of the people in charge of the operation turned out to be one of my handlers from a year before. So he'd been brought over from the north because, you know, somebody that he knows is the way they try and do it. And we end up and a big posh house in Brighton. Can you believe that? They took me to Brighton. Jesus. <laughs> the bomb happened. In fact, we're walking along the beach the next day and he showed me the hotel. I thought, Jesus, have you could have brought me somewhere else. I would be very reluctant today to go to Derry and kind of, you know, saunter about, as the man says. I wouldn't do that. My daughter, Maria, was killed in a, a road traffic accident in Donegal and I got a phone call and I thought, Jesus, you know. I got ready and to go to the funeral. I got a car up to Stansted and I was waiting for the flight to be called and these people sat down beside me. Clearly from Home Office or MI5, they didn't really say where they were from. And she said to me, look, we can't stop you getting on that plane. But if you go to that funeral, we know for a fact there are other people going to that funeral to see if you turn up. And if you go to that funeral, it'll become a joke and you'll become the event and not the funeral. But so I had to sit there for a minute, took a deep breath and just the flight was called and I called my name. And I just sat there and then I went home. So I couldn't go to her funeral. And then the following year, in the spring, my son Mark died of sepsis in the hallway, Galway Hospital. And uh, the same people contacted me and said, listen, we know how hard this is, but look, there's only one florist in that town. And even if you send flowers, they'll get your credit card. No, don't, and don't be going. So I wasn't able to go to Mark's funeral either. There's been people, friends of mine, you know, have died. And 
have spoken to their wives on the phone during the week or their husbands. It's just so sad. And people say to me, look, Wally, we know you would come if you could. But then sometimes I think maybe I should. But uh, then you have to sort of park that and say, no, it's too risky. But, you know, of all the things that's happened to me, and I've cried many times, many, many times, I would do it all again tomorrow. Words and all. Because I know how it ends. So there. (laughs) Willie Carlin spied for British intelligence for 11 years. He describes the experience in the book Thatcher's Spy, my life as an MI5 agent inside Sinn Féin. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron. Our iSpy team includes Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us. iSpy at foreignpolicy.com. iSpy is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in not just espionage, but smart geopolitical news and analysis from Washington and around the world, please consider subscribing. iSpy listeners can get a 10% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code PODCAST at checkout. Next week on iSpy, to impress the Hell's Angels, undercover agent Jay Dobbins needs to kill a rival gang member. We beat him with a baseball bat duct taped his ankles and his feet together, stuffed him in a shallow grave in the desert and shot him in the head with the gun we were given. That's next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale.